Remain standing for our gospel lesson and sermon text from Matthew 27. Listen to the gospel of God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around them. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments Casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, by the prophet. They divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there and they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Thus far, the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord. Amen. Father, bless the reading and the hearing of your gospel this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Today and on Good Friday, we're going to be considering the victory that took place on the cross, remembering that even in that dark hour, and it was a dark hour, even then, God was in control of everything, no less than he was the day before, the year before. His sovereignty was not shaken and he was sitting in the heavens laughing as humanity carried out his perfect will and so we are going to ponder we're going to meditate on the cross and what it means with an eye to the victory that Jesus won even on the cross the sermon text for today 
is Matthew 27, the verses that I just read from Matthew 27. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want. We'll be, I'll be referring back to it a few times. And the topic today specifically is the irony of the cross. We're going to talk about the irony that God was working out in his sovereignty even in that dark day. The, the gospel writers tell the story of Christ's crucifixion in a very ironic way. The irony is found in the words that I just read, the words of those mocking Jesus. Many of the things that they say about Jesus were ironically true. But these mockers did not know that they were speaking the truth, did they? The concept of irony is maybe a little difficult for us to grasp, but the Bible uses irony all the time, all over the place, so we need to understand how God's irony works. And so in order to help you understand how it works, let me remind you of a famous biblical story that most of you know. It's full of irony. The story of David and Bathsheba. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and got her pregnant. She was not his wife, but he slept with her anyway. And she was with child. And he tried to cover it up, cover up his sin. He tried to bring Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back from the battle so that, she, so that he could sleep with her. And then he would think the baby was his. But that didn't work. Uriah refused to go and be with his wife when he brought, it, when he brought him back. And so that plan failed. And so David had to kill Uriah. He had to murder him. It's the only way to cover his sin. And then the prophet Nathan came and told David an ironic story. The story that Nathan told David was really about David. But David, ironically, had no idea of this. Nathan said, in effect, Your Majesty, I came across a difficult case up country. There are two men, their neighbors. One is a wealthy farmer who has all kinds of animals, countless. The other is a poor man who only has one little lamb. Actually, the poor man used to have one little lamb, but now he doesn't have any because the rich man took it from him. When the rich man had some guests, he didn't want to kill one of his own animals, so he took this poor man's lamb and he cooked it for his guests. So, King David, what do you think we ought to do about this? What should be done? Of course, David was outraged at what was going on in his kingdom. He responded to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. You see, this situation is thick. With irony, David has no idea how painfully ironic his indignant response is. Of course, Nathan knows. God knows. The author of Samuel telling the story knows. We know. But David was blind to the deeper meaning of his own words until Nathan exclaimed to him, you are the man talking about you. That's irony. Irony is what makes jokes funny. It, it makes stories interesting. 
It provides meaning and depth that cannot be accomplished otherwise. Sometimes the irony that we encounter in life or that we read about is intentional. Other times it's unintentional. David's irony was not intentional at all. He had no idea how ironic his words were until the prophet exposed him as the man. David thought he was being righteous in his response to Nathan's story, but in fact, he was only being self-righteous, quite unrighteous. Listen to what one scholar says about irony. Some irony is vicious. Some is hilariously funny, but we all know that irony has the potential, especially in narrative, for bringing a situation into sharp focus. Very often it is the irony in the narrative that enables hearers and readers to see what is really going on. Irony provides a dimension of depth and color that would otherwise be missing. So with that introduction, let us consider consider the ironies of the cross of Jesus Christ. Our, our goal in this sermon is to see how Matthew's gospel brings the situation into sharp focus for us through the use of irony. The way the crucifixion of Jesus plays out helps us to see what's really going on, maybe from a different angle. Scriptures use irony to provide a dimension of depth and color to the crucifixion that we might otherwise miss. So we'll be considering verses 27 to 40 this morning. And then at our Good Friday service, we'll pick up and go from 41 to 53. Now, when we get to Matthew 27, 27, Jesus has already been sentenced to death. His trial, if we can even call it that, is over. He has been sentenced to die on a Roman cross. And in our passage, we find the Roman soldiers preparing Jesus for crucifixion. And these soldiers are mocking Jesus. They're mocking Jesus as king. But what they don't know is that the man they're mocking as king is, in fact, the true king. Let me read verses 27 to 31 again. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed or staff in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. What we just read there, what you just heard in verses 27 to 31, was not standard operating procedure in the Roman Empire. It was not customary for the Roman soldiers to mock those they were crucifying. Perhaps they did it some, but it wasn't in the books. Now, in verse 26, Jesus is flogged, and that was standard procedure. It was common for prisoners to be scourged before their crucifixion. But it, but what we read in verses 27 to 31 goes beyond standard procedure. These guys are just making fun of Jesus. In verses 27 and 28, 
the soldiers gather around Jesus and they strip off his clothes and they drape a robe over him. This robe was most certainly one of the outer garments of the soldiers, which was violet or reddish purple, a royal color is the point here. And so they drape this reddish purple scarlet cloak over Jesus as if it were his kingly robe. So you see what they're doing? They're pretending that Jesus is a royal figure. Then in verse 29, they they weave together several strands of vines with big thorns on them, and they press this crown on his head. And they think they're being funny because they think that Jesus isn't really a king. You see, their joke only works if Jesus is not a powerful king. If they had known that Jesus actually is the king and that they are actually subjects in his kingdom, their mocking would not have been so funny to them. Then they put a staff or a reed in his hand and they pretend it's his kingly scepter. And then then they take turns bowing and mocking reverence to this king. They cry, Hail, King of the Jews. When they say this, they think they're mocking Jesus. And of course, at one level they are. But their mocking is just on the surface. There's a deeper meaning to their words that they are unaware of. And when we read these passages in the Gospels, we need to be aware of this ourselves. This is not just a mocking section section of Scripture where we read about mockers mocking. There's a much deeper meaning. They don't realize that their confession that Jesus is king actually speaks the truth. They don't know how true their words really are. But Jesus knows. His father knows. Matthew knows. And we know that Jesus is the king of the Jews. If we look closely, we actually see two Layers of irony stacked on top of each other. It's thick. You see, as the soldiers were mocking Jesus, they intended to be ironic themselves. When they say, hail, king of the Jews, they mean the exact opposite. They really mean that Jesus is not the king. In other words, they were trying to be ironic in saying, What is not true? That's irony. And so they think that the delicious irony is of their own creation. That they're the ones being ironic. But there's a deeper irony that they can't see. While the soldiers are attempting to demean Jesus as a weak, helpless, would-be king and criminal... All the while, their words keep telling the truth about who Jesus is. They keep saying true things. Jesus really is the king. These soldiers are laughing at Jesus, but God always gets the last laugh. Psalm 2, verses 4 to 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy 
hill. You see, in this story, as we read it, God is setting his king on Zion, on his holy hill. The man they mock as king really is the king that God is establishing. And Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the whole world. After his resurrection, Jesus says that his kingly authority is over everything. Not just the Jews, but everything on earth and not just everything on earth, but everything in heaven in heaven and on earth. But even in this moment, even while he's being crucified, you see, Jesus is over the high priest, the chief priest, and the elders. He's king over Potiphar, uh, Pilate, rather. He is king over the soldiers mocking him. One day, the knee of all these mockers, the priests, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, one day their knees will bow. And they will confess Jesus as the Lord and the King of heaven and earth. In the story of the cross, God gets the last laugh. Victory is the Lord's even on Good Friday. As we think about this, we need to make sure the joke isn't a little bit on us. We must resist the temptation to be triumphalistic about the kingdom of God. So I'm emphasizing victory and triumph on the cross, but not triumphalism. We easily slip into the mindset of James and John, the two brothers, the disciples of Jesus, who thought the kingdom of Christ was going to be like the kingdoms of this world, triumphalistic and glorious in worldly ways. And so they asked Jesus if they could rule with him on his right hand and on his left hand. James and John, it'll be a glorious thing. Lord, can we rule next to you when you set up your kingdom? We know it's coming. We want to be right there. Of course, James and John had no idea what they were really asking for, did they? So Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? He's talking about his suffering. And ultimately his death. And it's interesting even in this passage. That it refers to the uh, robbers on his right hand and on his left. And if John and James want to be with Jesus in his right hand and on his left hand. They're going to have to take up their cross too. Right? And be with Jesus in suffering and ultimately death. And James and John, they, they thought they could drink this cup. How hard is that? Right? Drink this cup of glory. And ironically, they would one day drink the real cup of suffering, persecution, death, even though at the time they had no idea what the cup was. They did not realize that the cup referred to suffering with Jesus on his right hand and on his left, even as these robbers are. Jesus instructs them that the kingdom is not like the kingdoms of man. The kingdoms of this world are about self-promotion and self-preservation. They're about being first and about being the greatest. But King Jesus shows us in going to the cross what his kingdom is about. Jesus seeks the good of his subjects. He becomes last. 
he becomes the least. He becomes poor for the sake of his kingdom, for the sake of his people on the cross. That's how he wins victory, by becoming weak. Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe. At no point is he out of control of the situation. And yet this is his top priority, his main mission. To serve his people, even to the point of death. King Jesus, another way of saying Christ Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve. Even to give his life as a ransom for his subjects. Jesus is not looking for someone to sit at his right hand in glory. He's looking for people who are willing to serve. And then he will exalt you. Because Christ's kingdom is not a worldly kingdom. Pilate could not figure Jesus out. He had no category for the things Jesus was saying and doing. Jesus claimed to be the king. But he had none of the trappings of a worldly emperor. Or monarch. He had no scepter, no royal robe, no crown, no throne. And yet with profound irony, Pilate's soldiers crown Jesus as king. And they give him a scepter. And they robe him with royal colors. And they give him a crown. And they even establish him on his throne. Which was the cross. Part of the irony is that the cross of Christ is also the throne of Christ. The early Christians got this. The early church regularly spoke of Jesus as reigning from the cross. They saw the cross of Christ as his kingly throne. It's what the true king takes up. Because this is how the gospel writers depicted it. This is how the church has viewed it as well. The king's cross is the king's throne. You see, the enemies of Jesus are laughing. But Jesus is reigning on the cross. Jesus is establishing his kingdom even as they confess him as king. And they are participating in the establishment of his kingdom. The man who is mocked as king really is the king of heaven and earth. That's the first irony in this passage. The second irony Paul draws attention to is in verses 32 to 40, where we see that the man who appears utterly powerless is actually all-powerful. So the first irony, the man who is mocked as king, really is the king of heaven and earth. And the second one we're about to look at, the man who appears utterly powerless is actually all powerful. Verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put over him his and they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Do You see what Matthew is doing here. He's painting a picture of a weak and powerless Jesus, at least to the eyes of these men. When people were crucified in the Roman Empire, they they were forced to carry the crossbar that the arms and the hands were nailed to, and they carried it to the place where the upright part of the cross already was. But you see, Jesus is too weak in his human nature even to carry his cross. The soldiers had to grab Simon of Cyrene to carry it for him. And then they crucified him. Death by cross was meant to be shameful and painful. Usually the victim was naked. They probably stripped Jesus again. On the cross, the Son of God appears powerless and helpless. Verse 36 says the soldiers kept watch over Jesus. So what's he going to do? He can't do anything at this point. He's nailed to the cross. He's weak. But they keep watch over Jesus. And they were required to do this because of what had happened many times earlier in Rome's history. Earlier in Rome's history, soldiers were allowed to go home after nailing the person to the cross. But there were cases where the family and the friends, after the soldiers were gone, would take the victim down and nurse them back to health. And they would live. So the policy during Jesus' day was for the soldiers to stay until the person being crucified was certainly dead. Matthew, by telling us this detail, is reminding us here how hopeless Jesus' situation is. There's no, there's no way he's getting out of this one. There's no chance that the family and the friends of Jesus will be able to get him down and nurse him back to health. There's no hope that he will be rescued. The Messiah turns out to be another would-be Messiah, it looks. So it seems. He's defenseless, powerless, so it seems. He's suffering immensely, and it doesn't look as though he can do anything about it. And his appearance, of course, is awful. His body and his spirit are broken. He is being despised by men, and he is being cursed by God. And his only hope of escape is death. And then comes more mockery in verses 39 and 40. People walking by are blaspheming blaspheming him. They're shaking their heads in disgust and disdain. They're hurling insults at him. Verses 39 and 40. You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. 
What about the temple? How about start with yourself? If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The idea that anyone could rebuild Israel's temple in three days was preposterous. Even with modern equipment today, the temple could not be rebuilt in three days, no matter what kind of labor force you had. And it's even more preposterous now that the man who said he would rebuild rebuild the temple in three days is being nailed to a cross in shame. And he can't even save himself. This mockery of Jesus must have been unbearable for the friends of Jesus, the mother of Jesus, and they heard it or heard about it. They must have been thinking about the bitter contrast between the power that Jesus claimed to have during his ministry and the powerlessness that he seems to have now on the cross. But you see, Jesus is not powerless on the cross. The Roman soldiers are not taking his life from him. He is freely giving up his life. The the Jews did not have Jesus crucified against his will. He willingly went to the cross. The mockers think they're the funny ones. They're proud of their joke about Jesus saving himself. This is the height of their humor, because after all, Jesus claimed he was the savior. Oh, you see the irony there. But he he can't even save himself from this Roman crucifixion. How is he going to save anyone else? Well, Matthew knows. His readers know. God knows. Jesus knows. And we know that it's precisely in the weakness of the cross that Jesus demonstrates true power. We know that the joke God is telling is far deeper than the mocking of the Jews and the Roman soldiers. We know that in destroying Jesus, they're actually fulfilling the prophetic words of Jesus when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. Words that they did not understand and therefore words that they are actually accomplishing, fulfilling even as they make fun of him for saying these words. The enemies of Christ are fulfilling the prophecy of Christ despite themselves. And they're bringing about God's plan of salvation. The mockers think they're being witty and funny by pointing out Jesus' claims about the temple. But they fail to see that Jesus is the temple. He is the true temple, the greater temple. By saving By staying on the cross in abject humility and weakness, Jesus is setting things up for his resurrection three days later. The mockers think that their sarcasm is brilliant when they implore Jesus to get down, save yourself. But the deeper irony is that the only way Jesus can save himself and his people truly is by staying on the cross. The cross. The only way he can be the true savior of the world is by taking up that cross 
all the way to the point of death by taking the insults and by taking God's curse upon him. He's the true Savior and King, not in spite of the fact that he's dying on a cross, but precisely because he does not save himself from the cross. You see the logic there, the true logic, the biblical logic. The sneers and the jeers that these mockers hurl at Jesus describe accurately, accurately in a sense, what is going on. Jesus will save. He will raise the temple in three days. He will overcome this cross. But he won't do it in a worldly way. He will do it by dying on the cross. Here we see the logic of the city of man and the logic of the city of God clashing. Jesus was practicing what he preached when he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Jesus, you see, willingly lost his life in order to find resurrection life on the other side. Jesus really did believe what he preached about dying to yourself, denying yourself. And it really is true that if you give up your life, if you lose your life, you will find God will give you true life, which is hidden with God in Christ, Paul says in Colossians. Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 12. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am what? Then I am strong. Do you view your weaknesses as strengths? Do you feel strong, at least by faith, when you are weak? Do you believe that God is working in you for your good, for his glory, even through your trials, your hardships? Do you see God's glory and power in your frustrations and pain? That's gospel logic. That's the logic of the city of God. Biblical logic. Each of you is called to live an ironic, or we could call it upside-down life. Another way of saying this is that you're called to live a life that does not make sense to the world. If your life makes total sense to unbelievers, everything you do makes sense to them, you may not be living according to the logic of the gospel. You're called to be weak so that you can live with real power. You're called to die so that you can truly live, so that Christ can live in you. You're called to die so that Christ and his resurrection power can live in you. 
The path of the cross, and here's the point, the path of the cross is the only path to victory. It was true for Jesus, and it's true for you. The road to resurrection life, abundant life, is called death. The road, death. If it's true glory that you're after, and we all are after glory. If it's true glory you're after, then take up your cross and start dying with your Savior. If you die, God will take care of your glory. Don't believe the lies from the world. Don't believe the mockers. Don't buy into their logic. The world will mock you for taking up your cross. That's that's normal. That's what you should expect. However, if you're willing to lose your life, if you're willing to lose your ambitions and your rights, you'll find real life. And with God, you'll get the last laugh. It's a deep laugh. Real life is resurrection life. And you can only experience resurrection life when you are willing to embrace a life of weakness and death to self, even as your Savior Jesus did for you. Let's pray and ask God for help in doing this. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross that gives us victory. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead and seating him on his eternal throne. Help us to live in such a way that shines that life and that light that Jesus has given us through the cross to the world. Help us to take up our crosses faithfully, with courage, with boldness, and with faith. Help us to believe what you say is true, and to reject the wisdom and logic of the world. We need your help. We need your spirit to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.